0: Well, a really great uh, football coach or a great general in the military or just a, a great leader in general has the ability not only to address the problems of the people that he's leading, but also to motivate change. In those people, for example, a great football coach, you know, they're, they're often known for their halftime speeches, especially when their team has been beaten in the first half and they are losing the game. And you know, those great football coaches will typically start those halftime speeches addressing the problems that their team has had so far in the game, and and they might say things like, you know, you guys are playing like this is the very first time you've ever played football before, and he might say like, Colson, you missed that key. Bl- Lock, and you know we would have made that run, or you know Mike, you didn't see the receiver wide open in the end zone, and we could have had a touchdown there, or you know Philip, you weren't paying attention to the signals, and you jumped offside, and you you cost us a penalty, and you know after a few minutes of addressing the problems, a great coach changes his focus from the problems his players have to motivating change in them. You know I know you guys can do better than this. I've seen you play great football. I'm convinced that you are a far better team than the one that you're playing now. And I know that you have it in you to go in there in the second half to dominate this team and to win this game. Now, because of this motivating halftime speech, you know, these players, their feelings and their thinking would change from when they entered halftime to when they left halftime. You see, these players would come into the locker room at halftime feeling defeated, feeling discouraged. They, they would have been thinking, you know, we're going to lose this game. They might have been thinking of, you know, giving up. But after being motivated by their coach, they would leave the locker room with a, a change of feeling, which a, with a change of thinking. Their feelings would change from being discouraged to being encouraged. Their thinking would change from thinking they're going to lose to thinking they're going to win. And that change in their feelings and their thinking would impact their actions. They would go out in the second half. They would give their all to win the game. Now, the reason I bring this up is not because it's Super Bowl Sunday, but it's because the author speaks like one of these great coaches, these great military leaders, these great leaders here in Hebrews Chapter 6. He he starts by addressing the problems that these Hebrew believers have. The the problems that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Problems of being spiritually immature and the consequences of falling away from Jesus. And as we'll see this morning in verses 7 and 8, also the problem of not bearing spiritual fruit. But then the author changes his focus. He, He changes his tone In verse 9. And he goes from addressing the problems these believers have, warning them about the consequences of it, to motivating them to change. You see, in verses 9 through 20, the author has several great motivations, several great encouragements for why these believers should change. Why they should go from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. Why they should stop trying to leave Jesus and go back to Judaism, why they should continue to live for Jesus even in the midst of persecution, why they shouldn't give up. You see, all the persecution that these believers were were going through caused them to come to this place where they were just feeling discouraged. They were feeling defeated. They were considering giving up. They were considering walking away from Jesus. And not only did they need to be warned about the problems in their life, not only did they need to be warned about the consequences of continuing down that road, but they also needed to be encouraged not to give up. They needed to be motivated to change. And that is exactly what the author is going to do in verses 9 through twenty of Hebrews chapter six. He encourages believers not to give up. He motivates them to change from where they are to where they need to be. And so this section, I think, is a great section of encouragement and motivation to each one of us. Because we've noted that, you know, we all struggle with spiritual immaturity. We struggle with many of the things that these Hebrew believers struggled with. And so we're going to see some good encouragement and motivation for us for how we can grow spiritually and live for the Lord better than we are now. Now, since there's so many great encouragements and motivations in the verses that we're going to be looking at, we're not going to do them all this morning. You know, we wouldn't be able to do all of them justice by just looking at them this morning. And so uh, we're going to break them up. We're going to do some of them this morning, and then we're going to do some of them next week as well. Now before we get to verse 9 where we see this change in focus and change in tone, we still have verses 7 and 8, which is kind of the, the conclusion of the warning that the author has been giving. And he's going to conclude this warning with an illustration that kind of reminds them of the importance of spiritual maturity and also the problem of falling away from Jesus, And so we're going to start with the conclusion of this warning and then we'll transition into the change that the author has. So the end of the warning is verses 7 and 8. It says this, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed. Whose end is to be burned. So, here the author gives an illustration of two things that grow. There's something that grows that is useful, and there's something that grows that is not useful. You see, when God blesses the earth with rain, one of the the blessings of that rain upon the earth is that it causes things to grow. And some of those things are useful things. Herbs and fruit, things that the farmer can take and he can eat. They're, they're a blessing to him. He actually looks to God and says, I have received a blessing from God because the ground has produced something useful for me. But there are other things that grow because of the rain, things like thorns and briars, and those things are not useful. To the farmer, those are actually things that are problematic for the farmer. Those are things that cause pain and work and toil for the farmer. And since those things are not useful for the farmer, he rejects them and burns them. Now, the point the author is making with this illustration is just like God blesses the earth with rain, he has also blessed these Hebrew believers. And just like the farmer is looking for the earth um, that has been blessed with rain to produce something useful like herbs and fruit, God, he is looking for those that he is blessed to produce useful spiritual fruit. You see, throughout the Bible, producing spiritual fruit or the fruit of the Spirit is definitely a sign of spiritual maturity. And that's as we've seen something the Hebrew believers have been struggling with. They haven't been producing much spiritual fruit because they haven't been very spiritually mature. And that's a warning to them. Because that means that since they're not producing something useful, they're producing something unuseful. Like thorns and briars and those things that are unuseful, they get rejected. They get burned by God. You know, Jesus gives a very similar illustration in John 15, 4 through 6, but he adds something very important that I think is the missing ingredient for why these Hebrew believers are struggling so much. Jesus says this, "'Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches.'" He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. In Jesus's illustration, which is similar to the author of the Hebrews, he makes it very clear the only way, the only way to produce spiritual fruit is to abide in Jesus. This Greek word translated abide means to remain, to continue with, to not depart. So Jesus is saying, "Hey, the only way you're going to bear fruit is if you remain with me. You continue with me. You do not depart from me." And this fits perfectly with what he uh, the author of Hebrews is warning his readers about because They're not bearing spiritual fruit, and the reason why is because they're not abiding in Jesus. I mean, that is not their main problem. Their main problem is saying, you know, we're going to leave Jesus, and we're going to go back to Judaism. We're going to depart from Jesus. Well, that is the opposite of abiding. And this is why they're struggling to mature spiritually, because if you want to produce spiritual fruit, which is a sign of spiritual maturity, there's only one way that happens, and that's through abiding staying connected with Jesus. And this is something they were really struggling with. And I think this is a warning not only for them, but also for us. Because this is something that that we struggle with as well. You know, we have this desire to produce fruit for God. We, We want to do things for God, but yet sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's impossible to do it unless we abide in Jesus. And just like these religious leaders or these, uh, sorry, Hebrew believers, they thought, you know what, we could leave Jesus. We could go back to Judaism. We could go back to doing the works of the law. And by doing these works of the law, we could produce spiritual fruit for God. But it wasn't true. Going back to those things wouldn't produce any spiritual fruit because they had to leave Jesus in order to do that. And Jesus makes it clear, you can't produce anything unless you're abiding in me. So it doesn't matter how many works of the law you do, none of it is going to produce spiritual fruit. And I think we often fall for that same lie today. We often think that we can leave Jesus, we can, you know, maybe, or maybe we just think of, we just won't abide in him quite the same. And and we can still produce spiritual fruit by our good works. But the Bible tells us our works apart from Jesus are like, Filthy rags to God. There's only one way to produce spiritual fruit, and that is to abide, to stay connected to Jesus Christ. And as we abide in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will start to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, so far in this warning, the author of Hebrews has been focusing on the problems. The problems that these believers have, and the warning of the fact that there are consequences that are associated with these problems. And now we're come to verse nine, and the focus and the tone of the warning now changes. It goes from a focus about the, the problems and the consequences and a tone that is severe and stern to a focus on encouraging and motivating these believers to change with a tone that is gentle and encouraging. You know, I would say the heart of this section that we're going to see in verses 9 through 20 is a heart that says, you know, even though you may have fallen, even though you haven't been living the way you should, God wants to motivate you to get back on track. God wants to motivate you to live for Him again. You can still change. You can still spiritually grow. You can still be used greatly by God. So, if you have fallen, if you haven't been abiding in Jesus like you should, if you've been struggling in your walk with God, I want to encourage you that, you know, these verses should be verses that encourage and motivate you to get up, to come back to following Jesus, to start living for Him again. And the first encouraging motivation the author gives to help these Hebrew believers and to us to really grow And change is in verse 9. It says this. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So here we have a a very important contrast that we see at the very beginning here of verse 9. The author has just warned them about the consequences of falling away from Jesus, the consequences of not bearing spiritual fruit. And then he says, but, we have this contrast, Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. The first thing I want you to note here in this contrast is what the author calls these Hebrew believers. He calls them Beloved. And this is really important because it's the only time in this entire letter that this term is used. And and up to now, you know, there's been some kind of harsher terms, some terms that really are just associated with their failures, with their problems. You know, you guys are immature spiritually. you got all these issues. You know, the way in which he has been addressing them has been really different from this term beloved. The word means esteemed. Dear, one who is greatly loved by another. And that's quite a shift in tone from severe to loving and encouraging and gentle. So the author calls these believers beloved, those that are dear to me, those that I love. And notice what the author says about those that he loves. He says, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. I want you to try to put yourself in you know, the readers, the initial re- readers' you know, situation. And you, know, you guys have been messing up. You're spiritually immature. You know, for the most part, you know, this last section has just been a real rebuke about the way in which you've been living, the problems that you have, the consequences that are coming if you're not changing. And then all of a sudden, you hear this. And what an encouragement that must have been. The author is saying, though I have spoken in a manner that's quite severe, though I addressed your problems and the consequences that would come if you didn't change, myself and those who are with me are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, of things that accompany salvation. Notice what he's saying. We don't think that what I described in verses 4 through 8 are things that are going to happen to you guys. And not only are we confident that you're not going to go down that sinful road that leads to thorns and and briars, we are confident that you're going to choose to go the right way, that there are things that are better things for you, better things that accompany salvation. Now, something important to note here is that these believers are discouraged. And the reason they're discouraged is because they've been persecuted. And I think they're most likely discouraged as well because they've been going backwards in their spiritual life. And you know what? They need two things. They needed someone to love them enough to point out their failure. They needed someone to love them enough to say, you know what? You guys have these problems, and if you don't get your act together, there are some consequences that are going to be associated with those problems that you really want to avoid. They need someone to do that, but if that's all the author did, If that's all he did was say, you know what, you guys got these issues and you got these problems and you got these consequences coming, that wouldn't have motivated them. It most likely would have just discouraged them even more. They probably would have gotten closer to this place of wanting to give up. But when the author changes his focus, changes his tone, lets these believers know, I'm confident of better things concerning you I'm confident you guys are going to change and do what God wants you to do that would have been such a an encouraging thing and a motivating thing for them to actually change you see when you're in a discouraged place of defeat when you start thinking I'm never going to overcome this I'm never going to get victory I've done this thing over and over and over again It's such a blessing to have a brother or sister in Christ who encourages you. Who encourages you with the confidence that they have in God. Not that they have in you. That they have in God who is able to help you get through it. Who is able to help you get victory. Who is able to help you overcome what you're dealing with. You know, sometimes we just need someone in our corner reminding us of what is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the first motivation the author gives these believers to help them change and grow is his own confidence that God has better things for them and that God will help them change. And this is a great motivation to help us change and grow as well. And so as we look at this personally for ourselves, the first thing that motivates us to change and grow is having believers in our lives who are confident in what God has for us and his ability to help us change and who encourage us in that, You know, I think all of us need believers in our corner who know the Word of God enough that they can be confident in God, confident in His power, confident in His ability, confident in what He can do in our lives, confident in the, His ability to help us through difficulties. We need mature believers who are going to point us to the Bible and point us to Jesus when we're struggling when we're in that persecution or that hardship or that failure. You see, when we're struggling with spiritual maturity or living for God or overcoming sin, we often get counsel from people that don't give us biblical wise counsel. These are people who ultimately encourage us to do things that go against what God's Word says. And sometimes it's purposeful and sometimes it's just out of ignorance, but the reality is we're not getting good counsel. And sometimes, let's just be honest with ourselves, that's what we want. Because we're in sin and we know we're in sin and we just really want someone to say, it's okay, you can continue in that behavior You can continue to do that. You can continue to treat that person that way. You can continue to indulge in those things. We often just want someone to say, yeah, it's okay. And then we say, oh, great. Then at least I got somebody who agrees with me that I don't need to change. Because, you know, if we know enough of the Bible, we know that, hey, if I'm going to come to someone who's going to give me biblical advice, they're going to tell me, you can't do this you got to change. I don't want to change. I want to keep doing this. And so there's some times where we actually seek out people to give us the counsel we want to hear, but not the biblical counsel we need to hear. And that's why we need believers who know God's Word. We need believers in our lives who are confident in what God has for us, confident in the ability that God has to change us, but also who will take the time to actually encourage us. In those things. So that's the first thing that motivates us to change and growth. The second thing that motivates us is in verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now remember, the real issue going on here with the Hebrew believers, the reason why they're ultimately discouraged is because they're being persecuted for doing something good, for following Jesus. You know, they go out and they follow Jesus, they preach the gospel, they do what God's Word says, and now they're suffering because of it. Now they're being persecuted because of it, and there's a discouragement that has come upon them that has led to some behavior that is not right. But you know, I think it's easy to fall into something when you're being persecuted, when you're going through difficulty, just because you're a Christian. And one of the temptations is to believe or think, you know what? God's forgotten about me. God's forgotten about all this sacrifice, all these things that I've done for him. Because we think in our mind, well, if if he remembered me, surely he would have not allowed me to go through this. If he remembered me, then I wouldn't be dealing with these things. And so we come up with this kind of conclusion that's not accurate or biblical, but we just think, you know what, has God forgotten about me? I'm living for him, and now look at, I'm being persecuted because of it. And none of us like it when we feel forgotten or unappreciated. And you know what, if you've been in the church long enough, you have come to realize that with other believers, this is just a reality that will happen. You'll do things for believers that they don't appreciate. You'll go out of your way and do stuff for someone and and they'll just forget all about it. And none of us like that. You know, it's not that we, we try to do it for the pat on the back or the approval or whatever, but, you know, it's not nice to, to serve and and invest in and, and do all this for someone who just doesn't appreciate it or forgets it. And sometimes we think, yeah, God's doing the same thing. But you know what? God's not like us, thank goodness. He doesn't forget. And I think that's where it comes to this even worse place of thinking, God forgot me. God doesn't appreciate me. Well, I think the author knows where these believers are at. And he knows they need encouragement. He knows that they're in this place of thinking, you know what? Has God forgotten me? So he gives them not only encouragement, but great motivation to keep living for Jesus. He says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name. And that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Notice what the author says about God. God is not unjust to forget. Well, what is it that God is not unjust to forget? He's not unjust to forget the work and the labor of love that these Hebrew believers have shown in His name towards other believers. Notice that the Hebrew believers have works, and they have labors of love. And the works and the labors of love, they're done for God. And they're done towards other believers. And it was something that they did in the past. We're told they have ministered to the saints. But it wasn't just a past thing. It's also something they're doing in the present. And they do minister. So these Hebrew believers, you know, they had a lot of problems, which you've been looking at. But in the midst of all these problems, here's something that is a shining light. Here's something that the author wants to encourage them in. I, I pointed out some issues, but, but let me point out something that is good in your life. You know, you guys are still ministering in love in the name of Jesus to other believers. You did it in the past, and even with all your problems, you're still doing it in the present. And, and that's an encouraging thing, but that's not the main encouragement he wants to bring To these believers, because they're going through this great persecution and they're like, Lord, I'm still loving people. I'm still doing these things. Have you forgotten about me? Have you forgotten about all these things that I'm doing for you? And the author wants to encourage them with a wonderful truth God is not unjust to forget their works and labor of love. The author's saying, hey, guys, don't be discouraged because God has not forgotten about you. And I love the fact that the author doesn't just say, God has not forgotten about you. He says something even more profound. He says, God is not unjust to forget about you and what you've done for him. Notice he connects the justice of God with the memory of God. And he's doing that to show that God can't forget us and what we have done for him. Because if God forgot you, Guess what that would make him? Unjust. But God's not unjust. He's perfect. He's perfect in his justice. And one of the ways he demonstrates that perfect justice to us is through his perfect memory. He doesn't forget you, and he doesn't forget anything that you have done for him. God sees everything. He sees what you're doing for him. He sees what you're going through for him. And he's not forgetting it. Now we come to conclusions because we think, well, I don't want to be going through this and I don't want this happening. But don't cause that to make you think a lie that God must have forgotten me because he has not. And he will never forget you. So the second thing that motivates us to change and grow is the fact that God never forgets about us or what we have done for him. Now that truth should not only encourage us, which I hope it does, but it should also motivate us to continue to live for God even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of a a culture that's against him, even in the midst of, of hardship and trials. You see, when you're being persecuted or going through a trial, one of the lies of the enemy is that God has forgotten you or that God doesn't care about what you're doing for him. And since God has forgotten you, why don't you just forget about Him? Since God doesn't seem to care about what you're doing for Him, why don't you just stop? And sometimes we listen to those lies and we accept those lies and we allow those lies to make us believe, yeah, He has. Well, if He's forgotten me, well then forget you, God. If you don't care about what I'm doing for you, well then I'm not going to do anything else. We need to realize those are lies from the enemy. And we need to know this truth. God doesn't forget about us. He doesn't forget about what we've done. Not only does He remember everything that we do for Him, but He also tells us He's going to reward everything that we do for Him. Jesus speaking in Mark chapter 9, verse 41 says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. I mean, when we think of the things that we do for Jesus, probably typically, you know, giving someone a cup of water doesn't you know, meet the cut. But Jesus is saying, even something as simple as that, you're giving someone a cup of water in my name, I will not forget it, and I also will not, uh, I will give you the reward for it. So the first thing that motivates us to change and grow is having believers who are confident in what God has for us and His ability to help us change and who encourage us in that. The second thing is the fact that God does not forget about us or what we've done for Him. And the third thing that we're going to look at this morning that motivates us to change and grow is in verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So the author just encourages believers, hey, God has not forgotten about you and he's not forgotten about all the works that you have done for him. And now he encourages each of them to show that same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end and that they would not become sluggish. And then he says, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And the end of verse 12 is a, is a great section that we're actually going to look at next week because it ties right in to this next thing. The author is going to talk about the promise of God that he gave to Abraham. And this is kind of a lead in to that. And so they, we're going to end this morning just focusing on verse 11 and the very beginning here of verse 12. And there are two really important words that I want us to note and to define so we can kind of understand what the author is saying. And those two words are diligence, and sluggish. The Greek word translated diligence means earnestness in accomplishing something to take great care and to give your all. And so when we're speaking of a, a diligence, I am earnest in doing it. I'm going to take great care to accomplish and I'm going to give everything I have to make sure it happens. That's what we mean when we speak of someone who is diligent in something. Well, that is the complete opposite of sluggish. This Greek word here, translated sluggish, means slothful and lazy. So here's what the author is saying I want you to be diligent, to have an earnestness, to take great care, to give your all, to live for Jesus to the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, the full assurance of hope is. The hope that we have of heaven. And guess what? Once you and I get there, it is the end. The end of this life. When we die, we go to heaven. Or when we're raptured, we go to heaven. And that's when this life and living for Jesus in this life here on this earth ends. And so what the author is just saying is, hey, I want you to be diligent to live for Jesus till the end of your life, for the rest of your life. To not go back to being slothful lazy and that's the difference and this is really where many of these believers have gone you know we noted that they went from spiritual maturity back to spiritual immaturity there was a place in time where they were diligent they gave their all they were pursuing that relationship with God and living for God and then they got to this lazy place this slothful place this place where they were sluggish and they're just like you know what I'm dealing with all this persecution. There's all these things going in my life. And and so I'm just going to no longer abide in Jesus. I'm going to walk away. I'm not going to live for him. You know, that's the place where they find themselves right now. And so the author is encouraging them, go back to being diligent. Get away from being lazy. Give it your all for Jesus till the end of your life. So the third thing that motivates us, To change and grow is continual diligence in living for Jesus. And I think that word continual is really the key. (laughs) All of us have seasons in our lives where we have that season of diligence and also that season of laziness when it comes to time with Jesus, when it comes to living for Jesus. And that's the struggle. The struggle is getting to that place of continual diligence. Because we might go for a stretch, maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year, maybe it's a couple years, and we've been diligent, we've been diligent, and maybe we come onto some difficult times. Maybe a pandemic hits, maybe you lose your job, maybe your marriage is struggling, maybe you're being persecuted. Who knows what the issues are? But those issues start to drive you to this place where you were diligent and you start to become less diligent. You get to the point where you would be labeled lazy in your time with God. Lazy and living for Jesus. He once was a priority, but not any longer. And if you're in that place right now, that place of sluggishness and laziness in your time with Jesus and living for Jesus, you know, Jesus gives a great challenge of what you should do. So don't we just leave here and say, yeah, you know, I'm not where I need to be, but I also don't have a clue of how to get there. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus writing to the church in Ephesus, I think he gives a great practical three-step thing that you and I can do to get back to where we need to be. He says this, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works. You know, if you read through these Letters to the seven churches. Everything so far to the church in Ephesus has been positive. They've been a great church. And he ends it with, I have this one thing. You guys have been doing so great, but there's this one thing I have against you, and it's a big thing. You've left your first love, which is their love for Jesus. They went from that continual diligence in living for Jesus and spending time with Jesus to that place of sluggishness and laziness in their time for Jesus And living for Jesus. And so Jesus tells them, there are three things that I need you to do in order to correct that. And those three things are remember, repent, and repeat. The first thing you need to do if you've left your first love, if you're in that place where now you kind of have this sluggish and and laziness in your time with Jesus and living for Jesus, you need to remember from where you have fallen. Remember what you left why? So you can get back there. Remember where you were when you used to spend time with Jesus, when He used to be your priority, when you used to read your word and pray and worship regularly. Remember how you used to live for Him. You know, remember where you were so that you know what you need to get back to. So the first thing is remember. The second thing is repent. The word repent means to change direction. And so, what Jesus is saying is, stop doing what you're doing now. (laughs) Because what you're doing now is not good. And you need to change direction and go back to what is right. You left your first love. You became sluggish and lazy in your relationship with God. And now you need to change direction and go back to your first love. Now you need to go from laziness to diligence in living for Jesus. So, first, remember. Second, repent. And the third thing is, repeat. Jesus says, do the first works. So Jesus is saying, hey, go back and repeat the first things that you used to do. Start doing them again. That's your problem. You stopped doing them and now you need to start doing them again. Repeat them. Get back into that time with Jesus on a daily basis, making him the priority, getting in to the word. Repeat those things and watch the change that happens. Now, I want you to note you can only remember the intimate time with Jesus and repeat those times if you actually had a time like that in your life. Because some people, their problem is even bigger. It's not that they can look back and say, man, you know, in you know, 2005 was that great year when I was spiritually mature, or whatever it may be, and they look back, and I really lived for Jesus, and I spent time with Jesus, and it was such a spiritually enriching time. Sometimes it's like, I've never had that in my life. I've never made Jesus a priority. I've never really lived much for him. And so you can't remember back and you can't repeat. What you need to do is repent of the fact that you've never started doing that. And let today be the day that says, Lord, I want to make a commitment to saying, I'm not going back to anything because I never did it before, but I am making a commitment to make you the priority of my life, to live for you today, to start today to do these things. So whether you're going to start again or you're going to start from the first time, These three things are important. Repent, remember, repeat. So the author is bringing great encouragement, great motivation, and he starts with these three things that should motivate the Hebrews, that should motivate us. First, have believers who are confident in what God has for us and His ability to help us change and who encourage us in that. Second, God does not forget about us and what we've done for Him. And third, continual diligence in living for Jesus. You know, we're talking about motivation to live for Jesus. And in all reality, there's probably not a greater motivation than looking at what Jesus has already done for you and me. If you're not motivated when you look at the cross, I don't know what it's going to take to motivate you. If you're not motivated by God sending His Son to sacrifice Himself for all your sins to take the judgment that you deserve upon Himself so that you can have everlasting life, so that you can have a relationship with God, if that doesn't motivate you, there's nothing that God's going to be able to do that will. You know, God doesn't forget about us, but you know what? He also doesn't want us to forget about Him. And He specifically doesn't want us to forget about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And He tells us, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember this specific thing that I did to demonstrate my love for you. And I want you to regularly remember me because you're prone to forget. And the way in which God tells us to do that is by taking communion together. That we take these elements, the the bread which represents Jesus' body that was crucified, and the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. And he says, hey, take that regularly in order to remember what I did. And we're going to do that this morning. But I don't only want us to look back in remembrance, which is always great to do. Uh, My prayer is that this would also be something that motivates. That as we leave here, if there are areas where you're just struggling with sin to overcome, let what Jesus did on the cross to pay for that sin, to bring victory in your life over that sin, motivate you to know, I can get victory. You know, if you're struggling with other things or with persecution, you know, look to what Jesus has done and hey, man, I don't know, maybe God's forgotten about me. No, He didn't forget. That sacrifice shows just how much He loves you. That sacrifice shows just how much He will never forget you. And so as we look to the cross, let's remember it, but let it also be something that motivates us in the areas that we need in order to live for Jesus the way that He wants us to. And so... I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And if you didn't grab the communion elements when you came in, if you go ahead and raise your hand, we'll make sure that you get that now so that you can partake of it with us. And after the song, you know, I'm going to come back up. And I just for this morning just want to take a time just to thank the Lord and to do it aloud. And if that's something that your heart desire is, that we just take some time just to thank Jesus for what he's done together, just listening to one another, you know, uh, show gratitude towards him. And then uh, we will close by uh, partaking of that communion together. And so let's just start with a song of worship and prepare your heart for this time of communion.